0: Talking Benefits, 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 Talking, Talking, Talk a little bit about, Benefits, Yeah, Benefits. Talking Benefits.
1: You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesworth. Welcome back everyone to another month of Talking Benefits. Julie, Kelly, I'm looking at the list of issues we're covering today and it feels a little bit like we're about to transition from last month's sci-fi theme to an old-time podcast mystery hour. Well, as
0: librarian of the group, I can definitely attest that this month's hot topics read like a novel full of unexpected twists and turns.
2: As our producer cues up all of the creaky door sound bites, Justin, do you want to start us off with your regular two-minute recap?
1: Yes. So, in past episodes, we had discussed the concept of the state-sponsored retirement savings programs. Uh, This is where states provide pooled programs, so those without employer-sponsored plans have a place to save. Currently, there's eight states that have a program of this type in place, and we have a new update. On May 18th, Vermont's program was approved as part of a larger omnibus bill. The Green Mountain Secure Retirement Plan will be implemented by January 15th, 2019. It's specifically for small employers, those with 50 and under, employees, that don't currently have a plan. It is voluntary for employers that can automatically enroll workers who can choose to opt out. And this program is funded by employee contributions only. Last time we had also talked about two House resolutions that were introduced to disapprove of the two sets of DOL rules dealing with these types of programs. Resolution 67 was previously signed into law. On May 3rd, the Senate passed Resolution 66, which dealt with the DOL state rule. President Trump signed it on May 17th. States have indicated that despite the disapprovals, they're going to move on ahead as planned. Revisiting paid sick leave laws, last month we discussed that the Maryland House passed a paid sick leave bill with enough support to override a veto. The bill also passed the Senate with a veto-proof majority. This specific bill would give workers at least five paid sick days per year if their employer has 15 or more employees. Well, we have an update on that as well. On May 25th, Governor Larry Hogan vetoed the bill. He said that he supports the concept of paid sick leave, just not this program specifically. He signed three executive orders, two expanding paid leave benefits at the state level, and one creating a task force to study the issue. The vetoed bill cannot be reconsidered or overturned until the legislature reconvenes in January 2018. And finally, paid family leave, President Trump's budget proposes six weeks of fully paid leave for new mothers and fathers, including adoptive parents. The proposal would use the state unemployment insurance system and states would have the latitude to design and finance the program in a way that works for their workforce and economy. Thanks,
2: Justin. A perfect prologue, as always. Now, let's turn to health care and the American Health Care Act, or AHCA. Kelly, something tells me
0: that the plot has thickened a bit. You're absolutely right, Julie. Last month's health care reform chapter concluded with a dramatic finish. The House of Representatives passed their version of the AHCA by a slim margin. 217 votes in favor and 213 votes against. The House did not immediately send the bill to the Senate. They waited for the related cost and impact report from the Congressional Budget Office, often called the CBO. The CBO's report said that the AHCA, if enacted, would reduce the federal deficit by $119 billion during the next 10 years. Also, during the same time period, it would increase the number of uninsured people in the country by $23 above the number expected to be uninsured if ACA were to continue. Kelly,
1: what do you think is the next chapter of this saga?
0: Justin, the next chapter focuses on the Senate. The House version of AHCA passed by such a slim margin, the Senate decided to start fresh and create their own bill. A small working group of 13 Republican senators has been meeting regularly to craft this bill. This approach is outside the norm of using the chamber's committee structure. What they're proposing is still a mystery. When the senators returned from the Memorial Day break, they held a meeting and presented a menu of options that as of this moment has not been revealed. In fact, as of today's podcast, the bill has not been written. There have been hints that they will make an effort to stabilize the insurance market before actually repealing the parts of ACA that created the health insurance exchanges, also known as marketplaces. There has been speculation that their bill will give states more flexibility when it comes to Medicaid. Perhaps they will have tax credits based on age and income. Perhaps they will propose taxing group health insurance. Will they propose High-risk pools to offer coverage to individuals with costly health conditions? Or will they promote reinsurance as a solution? Of course, once there is a bill, there is not a guarantee it will pass. Currently, the Senate has 52 Republican senators and 48 Democratic senators. The bill needs 50 votes to pass. Therefore, if all the Democrats vote against the bill, no more than two senators can also reject it if it's going to pass. There are a number of Republican senators who have expressed concern about what's in the House version of the bill and are not all that confident they will approve of the Senate bill that's coming. There are lots of possible plot twists, and more will be revealed in the coming weeks. So, Kelly, what's the proposed timetable for this bill? Well, Julie, the senators are seeking an aggressive timeline. Some have said they plan to pass legislation by the end of June. Others say it's more likely it'll be the end of July before they pass a bill. Congress typically takes a month-long break during August, and they really want to pass a bill before then. In addition, Congress will have a week-long break over the July 4th holiday. Unlike the House, the Senate must get an impact report from the CBO before they can vote on the bill, so that could slow down the process a bit. Congress is using the Budget Reconciliation Procedure to repeal and replace ACA, and as we discussed last time, that approach must meet certain specifications. There was some speculation that the House bill might not meet the criteria, and attention focused on the Senate parliamentarian.
2: The parliamentarian? Wow, this story has some interesting characters. I didn't expect a feature
0: role for a parliamentarian. I know. There has been suspense about how the parliamentarian will rule on the bill. And for those of you who might not be quite sure what a parliamentarian does, this person is the one who makes sure that all the rules and procedures and bylaws for an organization are followed correctly. So if the parliamentarian of the Senate decides the bill does not meet the budget reconciliation requirements, it would have to go back to the House for retooling and a new vote. On June 6th, the parliamentarian decided that one aspect of the bill that had been questionable did meet the requirements. But as of this podcast, there hasn't been a determination for the entire bill. The House bill won't officially be sent to the Senate until that ruling is made. The parliamentarian will also be asked for rulings when the Senate's
1: bill is ready for a vote. Stay tuned. Kelly, I recently read a news story about potential health care reform legislation in California. Is this a potential plot twist for the story? Well, it
0: could be. In early June, California Senate passed a bill proposing a single-payer health care system called the Healthy California Act and basically it proposes to offer universal coverage to all Californians. The bill still has to be passed in the state assembly and there's lots of debate about the costs of such a plan. It might be more of a red herring in our healthcare reform mystery. So, Kelly, what about
2: that legal case, House v. Price? That's the one that concerns the
0: cost-sharing subsidies for insurers. Are there any plot developments on that? Well, Julie, yes, there are. When we left off last time, the Department of Health and Human Services had until May 22nd to tell the court whether they were going to continue to appeal the district court decision that ruled in favor of the House. The decision said President Obama's administration overstepped its authority and did not have congressional approval to spend money on the cost-sharing subsidies for insurers. The Obama administration appealed the decision, but once President Trump was inaugurated, he asked the D.C. appeals court to hold off on the proceedings while his administration pursued the repeal and replacement of ACA. Because that repeal and replacement is still in process, the administration asks and was granted another 90-day delay in the case. So it's looking like we won't have a resolution for that storyline until mid-August at the earliest. But wait, there's a new twist in the tale. New characters have stepped onto the scene. 15 states and the District of Columbia, all led by Democrats, have filed a motion to intervene in the case and continue the appeal if the Trump administration drops it. They are concerned that health care from millions of Americans who buy their coverage in the exchanges will be jeopardized if
1: insurers lose the subsidies. All right, Kelly, that seems like enough drama about health care. Is it time to move on to a different chapter, please?
0: Justin, I wish I could say yes, but I can't. All the uncertainty about the future of ACA and the cost-sharing subsidies continues to send health insurers running in the opposite direction from the health insurance exchanges. Several areas across the country have only one insurer offering coverage for the 2018 exchanges, and a few areas currently have no insurer willing to offer coverage. So that's where we'll end our health care chapters for now.
1: It's a cliffhanger. If you're finding it hard to keep up with the ever-changing healthcare story, you're in luck. We have a new Future of ACA page on the International Foundation website to help you stay on top of all the plot twists. Visit ifebp.org ACAFuture to check it out. Now let's move on to Chapter 2, The Fiduciary Rule, although this saga could be an entire book all in itself. Julie, we've talked about this over the past few months, but it looks like the new Secretary of Labor, Alexander Acosta, was quick to pen his thoughts after he was sworn in.
2: Can you give us a quick update? Sure can, Justin. Over the past several episodes, as Justin mentioned, we've talked about the fiduciary rule, also known as the conflict of interest rule, that was issued by the Department of Labor under President Obama. As Justin also mentioned, Secretary Acosta has weighed in and we've also heard from the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, also known as the SEC. Julie, how about you give us the Cliff
0: Notes version of the history of the fiduciary rule?
2: Can do, Kelly. First of all, the DOL rule clarifies the term fiduciary as it relates to financial and investment advisors and it spells out when conflicts of interest arise relating to giving advice. It requires financial advisors to act in their clients' best interest. Now before the rule was issued, the SEC and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, also known as FINRA, had regulated certain advisors, but many financial professionals including insurance agents, commission-based stockbrokers, broker-dealers, and others weren't subject to a fiduciary requirement until the DOL rule. There's been a lot of backing and forthing hearings, comments, and discussions surrounding the DOL rule. In fact, all of this activity has been going on since 2010. Supporters of the rule say it protects investors. Opponents say the rule makes it more costly for smaller advisory firms and for less wealthy investors, and as such, it prevents individuals from receiving advice. The DOL released their final fiduciary rule on April 6th of 2016. The rule's applicability date, however, wasn't until April 10th of this year. And one aspect of the rule, the best interest contract prohibited transaction exemption, was given a phased-in implementation period until January 1st of 2018. This past spring, at the order of the Trump administration, the DOL opened a comment period on the review of the rule, and that was opened until April 17th. The agency also delayed the applicability date from April 10th to June 9th.
0: Julie, many of those plot twists took place before Secretary Acosta was confirmed. What's his take on this rule? Well, on May 22nd, Secretary Acosta
2: announced in a rather unusual way in an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal that there is no legal basis to delay the June 9th date. He also said, quote, the Labor Department has concluded that it is necessary to seek additional public input on the entire fiduciary rule and we will do so, unquote. He asked the SEC to participate in the discussion, and he pointed out that they haven't been very involved up until this point.
1: Julie, has the SEC
2: weighed in in any way about this in the past? During the Obama administration, the SEC requested public input on their existing standard of conduct rules. That was in 2013, but it never made any changes or issued new rules. One argument offered by opponents to the DOL rule was that the SEC should actually be the agency involved in this issue. There were even some bills proposed to change or negate the DOL rule that called for the SEC to act instead of the DOL. However, the SEC did not act at that time. But now the story is different. On June 1st, the SEC's newly confirmed chair, Jay Clayton, issued a public statement on the SEC website. He's opened a comment period to find out how the DOL's fiduciary rule will impact retail investors and others. The notice includes many questions in 17 different areas that they'd like commenters to address. Those who wish to comment can do so right from the site, and comments already submitted can be viewed there. There's no stated end to the comment period. But let's go back to the DOL. In conjunction with Secretary Acosta's announcement on May 22nd, the DOL released a field assistance bulletin stating that during the phased implementation period, now that's the one that ends January 1st, they won't pursue any claims against fiduciaries who are working, quote, diligently and in good faith, unquote, to comply with the rule. The DOL also released 15 FAQs offering guidance for the transition period of June 9th to January 1st. So, long story short, the mystery of the fiduciary rule continues.
0: Stay tuned. With so many updates on the fiduciary rule over the past year, it might be starting to read more like a textbook than a page-turning thriller. To start from the beginning and refresh yourself on this important compliance topic, consider enrolling in the Foundation's recently updated e-learning course called Fiduciary Responsibility for ERISA Plans. Learn more at ifebp.org slash e-learning. All right, thank you, Kelly. And on to our last topic
2: of the day, MEPRA. Wait, before we dig into that, I would like to give a special shout-out to John Held, Justin's dad, who's a faithful listener of our podcast and also a faithful fan of our co-ed softball team, the Honey Badgers.
1: Yes, my dad is an avid listener, most likely because uh, my grandfather is a retiree covered by a Central States Teamsters pension fund here in southeastern Wisconsin. And uh, my dad wanted to be a little more informed about the developments. Uh, So, Dad, you can start listening right now. Revisiting a previous MEPRA case, the Automotive Industries Pension Fund in Alameda, California, their application for reduced benefits was denied by the Treasury Department on May 9th, stating that the assumptions presented were not reasonable and the fund will not be able to avoid insolvency. Looking at proposals aimed to address multi-employer defined benefit pension insolvency, on May 9th, Bernie Sanders and Marcy Capture, introduced companion bills that would stop multi-employer plans from reducing benefits, established a PBGC legacy fund, and give relief to these plans. Two weeks later, on May 23rd, President Trump released his budget proposal that would allow the PBGC to charge multi-employer defined benefit plans a variable rate premium based on a percentage of the plan's underfunded level. This and other proposed changes would reportedly bring in more than $16 billion in aggregate to keep the program solvent for 20 years. On the labor side, Teamsters have reportedly drafted a proposal to ease insolvency. This proposal calls for Congress to create a nonprofit private sector corporation, the Pension Rehabilitation Corporation, to make loans to poorly funded plans or to contributing employers. Money would come from bond purchases by investors, and payments on the bond would be guaranteed by the full faith and credits of the U.S. Treasury.
0: Pension benefit reductions under MAPRA. Boy, that's a difficult topic. It will be interesting to see how this story unfolds and find out if any of these three proposals gain traction.
2: You know, I had a chance to talk here in the studio about Central States with a favorite International Foundation volunteer member, conference speaker, and committee member, Pete Rosine. A lot of the benefit professionals the Foundation works with have excellent stories from the industry, and Pete is certainly no exception. Here's our conversation in a new segment we're calling True Stories. Today, I'm chatting with Pete Rosine, a shareholder of the law firm Leonard O'Brien, Spencer, Gale and Sayre Limited in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
3: Welcome, Pete. Thanks, Julie, pleasure to be here with you today.
2: So Pete, you serve as the lead attorney for the firm's multi-employer fringe benefit fund practice. Can you start off by telling our listeners more about what
3: that means? Well, Julie, I've had the pleasure of representing multi-employer trust funds, uh, pension, health, vacation, apprenticeship, Uh, labor management for about 35 years and by virtue of the size of our practice in this area I get a chance to see a variety of funds and a variety of different problems. It's an exciting practice and and one that I think is growing uh, increasingly important in our society.
2: And how long have you been in the industry? You said you've been working there for about 35 years?
3: Yeah, this is my 36th year representing multi-employer fringe benefit funds. And uh, as with all good uh, lawyers, uh, after 36 years of practice, we hope we're getting it right.
2: Well, I bet you have some pretty interesting stories. Uh, Can you share one with
3: us? There are a number of of really interesting, fascinating things that have occurred in our practice over the years. I think one of the most uh, interesting has been the work that we did uh, representing the retiree representative in the Central States matter. Central States, um, of course, was was an exercise in trying to achieve solvency for that plan. And uh, we went through a very extensive kind of uh, process with the Board of Trustees of of Central States attempting to uh, put forward formulas that would ensure solvency, and it ended up being quite difficult. But one of the asides was that uh, the folks at the Treasury Department, uh, of course, had never done this MEPRA application stuff, and one of the things they wanted was for my client, the retiree representative, was to publish her telephone number. Well, we had about 400,000 participants in the Central States plan, We had to set up a sophisticated answering service to be able to take the calls that were coming in. We ended up hearing of terrible tragedies, and yet we ended up seeing people who uh, had great faith in what was going to come and who were very encouraging. We had one woman who slipped a $20 bill into an envelope and sent it to the retiree rep Mm -hmm. so she could get herself and her husband a cup of coffee and a treat uh, because of all the work that she was doing. Unfortunately, what all these messages did, though, was to reinforce the critical importance of having a retirement that was safe and dignified. And we see with the Central States matter uh, the impending insolvency of that plan and by virtue of that we are going to see families placed in catastrophic situations. And these phone calls detailed how folks had become disabled over time and what the effects of their disability were and how close they were uh, living to the edge of poverty and what the effects would be uh, on them and their family members by virtue of these kinds of pension reductions. And while I really felt that trying to get central states to position itself so that it would exist, and so solvency would be achieved. I really had to feel great sympathy for the folks who were involved, who had relied on a pension system, who were told that this was guaranteed, and it turned out that most of that has evaporated, and we are going to see a coming tragedy in terms of insolvency. And what that means, I think, for those who work in employee benefits, is that we really have to strategize about how it is that the imperative of annuitized income is going to be fulfilled in our society. What is it that we are going to do to ensure a dignified and meaningful retirement? Central states can serve as a lesson for us and it serves as a lesson for trustees in terms of their fiduciary uh, responsibilities, but it also serves as a lesson to each of us individually regarding making honest assessments about where we stand with respect to retirement. And I think that was probably the most important lesson that I learned in the Central States matter. Well, Julie, that's a sad but true story for you.
2: That story does definitely show us the impact that we in the employee benefits industry and the plans that we work with have on the lives and futures of the participants we work with. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Pete.
3: Always my pleasure to come down to the Maidenship and see all my good <laughs> friends.
0: Julie, thanks for that fascinating interview with Pete. Pete will actually be talking more about central states at the upcoming Advanced Trustees and Administrators Institute held June 26th through 28th in San Diego, California. You know, it's always great to end with a moral to the story. And on that note, the final lesson today is to keep on listening. The plot continues to thicken, so come back every month and we'll get you up to speed.
1: And if you like what you hear, please rate us or give us a review on iTunes. It helps other listeners to find the podcast. You can also send us an email at podcast at ifebp.org. And you may just get a shout out of your own. Thank you, Julie, Kelly. Pete, Dad, and all of our listeners for tuning in. All right, time to get ready for the Honey Badgers softball game. Hey, Justin, is your dad going to be there tonight? I texted my dad and said, you come into the game? And he said, only if it's Julie Bobblehead night. <laughs> so uh, we, might have to, we might have to work something up. It's <laughs> so cute. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Classic Horror 2, Clenched Teeth, and Mystery, courtesy Kevin McLeod Music.